what, a, what an amazing time to be back at Grace Point after, after being able to travel to West Africa and with an amazing team. And God did just, uh, to overuse the word amazing, just an amazing trip. God truly worked uh, in my life and other people's lives as well as in the Malian's life. Just a, an amazing trip. And there'll be stuff that will just sprinkle out through the weeks and the months ahead about that and what God has been doing in K Village. And so excited to be back, though, uh, with you. I wonder if you could answer this question if you were so boldly asked by a friend or someone that you know and love. If they were to ask you the question, where are you going? Would you be able to articulate an answer that has destiny wrapped up in it? Would you be able to articulate an answer that that says, I'm going here and I'm being led here and this is what I'm about and this is what gets me up in the morning? Would you be able to articulate something like that? Or is it just one of those kind of lives that you just kind of go from day to day and you just wait for the next squeaky wheel to tell you where you need to go and what you need to do next? And and if if you think you know where you're going and you think, okay, this is my destiny, this is why God created me, can you articulate then how you're going to get there? You know, it was amazing. It's not amazing. It's, it's a simple fact that every time I got on a plane, four planes over the past several days, went from uh, Mali, uh, Bamako, Mali, to Brussels, Belgium, to, to Newark, New Jersey, to, to Houston, Texas, and then to northwest Arkansas. It was amazing. Every single time I got one of those little boarding passes, it told me where I was, and it told me where I was going. And if that didn't line up, then I wanted to make sure that I got in the right line. Because in some of those international terminals, you could get in the wrong line and maybe you might end up in Paris or Moscow or any other number of places around the world. So you always want to make sure you know where you are and you know where you're going. My question again today is to come back and to ask you, do you know where you're at? Do you know where you're going? Because if you don't know where you're at and you don't know where you're going, then you won't even know when you get there. Make sense? Are we tracking together a little bit? Why are you here? Why do you exist? What is your life about? And I'm not really trying to create some riddle out there. I'm really not trying to muddle the brain. I'm actually trying to clear the mind. Because I do think so much of our lives we spend in some busy, frantic act- activity that is truly just a sideways energy. It's not moving forward. It's not moving with great destiny. It's not moving with a great vision and clarity about our lives. And maybe we don't want to know. Maybe we want to chart our own course. Maybe we want to be like a feather on the, in the breeze and just let it blow us where we will. So another question I want to ask, has God ever interrupted your life? You, you thought you were going here and you thought this was your destiny and you thought this was your future whatever this is, and you can fill in the blank. But all of a sudden, relationship change, career change, children change, your status changes, whatever that status is. And no longer are you on the path that you thought you would be on for the rest of your life. Or maybe God interrupts your life and He says, listen, I, you are here, but I want you here. And you, you don't want to be there. You like here. Here is nice. Here is predictable. Here is, here I've got it figured out. Here is comfortable. There I don't know. If I go from here to there, I don't know how I'm going to make it there, but I can make it here. 
Again, maybe I'm just going to stir up a little bit today, a little bit inside of who we are and what, what, what's going on to make sure we know where we're going. God interrupted a man named Jonah's life whenever he said, I want you to go to Nineveh. <laughs> he didn't want to go to Nineveh. So what does he do? He goes in the opposite direction. He goes to Joppa. And you know the story. He ends up becoming fish bait. Even though God had... Hello? Uh, even though God had this beautiful plan for his life to, to, to truly put him on a course that would help impact 100,000 people, that was his destiny, that was his calling. God had this great plan for his life, but he didn't want God's plan. So that brings a whole new question to the equation. If God were to interrupt your life, would you accept his interruptions? See, I think that God has plans for all of our life. Scripture backs it all the way through. But I'm afraid some of us don't want to know, don't want to live in that plan, can't see with a vision and a direction of where we are going. I think God gives us visions in life through different circumstances that we may go through. Tragedy brings on vision. Victory can bring on vision. But I don't know of anything like tragedy to bring on clarity and vision for life. I'm not saying all of it has to come through a tragic moment in your life, but there is something about that, that breaking down of the systems, that breaking down of securities, that breaking down of the known, that we begin to see with a greater clarity the vision that God may have for our life. A vision has been defined by Andy Stanley as a vision is a clear and mental picture of what could be fueled by a conviction that it should be. That is my favorite quote in that book. I will use that quote throughout this series of messages that just to hammer down on, on the fact that there's something that could be. What, what if? Could it happen? Could I be a part of the answer, the solution? But it's fueled by this passion, this absolute necessity that it should be. It's not just, can I make a new widget? Can I, can, I, can I sell more products? Can I get more faces in Walmart? But it's this idea that it's not just, could it be? It should be. It must be. It's got to be. This world, life, God's kingdom would expand. Whatever would be so much better if this were to happen. So what in your life has God ever showed you could be and should be? And you think, well, maybe I see the things around me, but I don't necessarily see how I can fit into the equation. Well, get ready for this journey that we're going to start today. We're going to start a study through the book of Nehemiah today. And this study will take us through several months. But today we're just going to launch into, it's actually a two-part message. Next week we'll finish it out. But we're just going to talk today just about the birthing of a vision. About, about the possibilities out there. About what could be and what should be that you see in your world, in your life, in your circumstances, that maybe it's not there and, and you, you don't know where to come up with that and you don't know if you're a part of that and so you find it easier to hand it off to someone else. Or worse, just do nothing. Mediocrity slips in. You begin to quit listening to that voice, that still small voice. But what is it? 
That every person in this room that's a child of God, that God has put you, put breath in your body, given days to your life, given you skills, given you passions, given you a personality. What is it that God has called you to in this season? Now, it may not be forever, but in this day, in this time, is He calling you to something? Can you see what could happen, what you could be a part of, and what should happen even bigger and greater than just yourself? Maybe, and again, I'm just going to list off a bunch of these today. Just to get the just to get the wheels turning in the in the spirit inside of you that maybe maybe one of these areas maybe it's to start a Bible study at work maybe it's to run for a political office maybe it's to become debt free these are all things that are out there that that literally I, I have seen it happen more than once that indebtedness keeps people from doing what God wants them to do. They become so strangulated by their expenses that they can't, and they want to, but they can't, so they don't. Is it is it to go on a global adventure? Is it to start your own business? Is it to increase your education? Is it to make a job change? Maybe it's not even to have a job. Maybe it's to be home with your children for such a beautiful period of time. I don't, I don't know what that is. What is it for you? Make a job change to increase increase more time with your spouse, with your children. Just to start a church or a ministry or a nonprofit out there to stop a bad habit, to start a good habit. To invite a friend to church, to become more physically fit, to restore a broken relationship, to become more spiritually fit. And then you can just fill in the blanks. But what is it out there in your world, in your life, in your circumstances that God may be calling you to? And the reality is I think that God has awakened many of us in our spirits, but we just don't share it. We don't know where to go with it. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know the next step. And so we just have this passion. We have this pain. We have this burden inside of us. But we don't know where to go. It's still in that embryonic stage. It's still in that first trimester. We don't, we're not ready to give birth to it yet. But, but, but it's in process. And so but instead of doing anything with that, that vision that God is giving us, that direction that God is giving us, that reshaping that God is giving us, we sit back and do nothing. In fact, Reader's Digest shared a study that I pulled out and kept in a file for some time. It said one in five people told Reader's Digest surveyors that they cherished a secret dream, but they've not talked to their spouse about it. Can you believe that? One in five couples are are not sharing ideas, are not sharing dreams, are not sharing possibilities, are not sharing what God may be doing in their life. They're just keeping it to themselves. What is God calling you to? What what dream has He given you? What passion, what burden has He birthed in you? Has He placed inside of you? Did you say, no, I've got too many things going on. I just keep pushing it back. What's the, what is the difference between, or what is a vision and a dream? I'll tell you, a vision is not, it is not some, some conscious thought that I'm talking about here. It's not some, com, some conscious thought that happens because you... You get this idea because of some late night television show that you watched and you're just laying in bed and you're watching Letterman's Top Ten and then all of a sudden you go to bed and you have this idea. That's not the vision or the dream I'm talking about. All right? 
visions and dreams like that are, are totally a subconscious process of the brain that we don't even need to try to dissect. But there are visions and dreams that go so, so much deeper. It, it's one of those things that happens when God, in this divinely inspired, here's my definition, a divinely inspired, clearly defined direction in which God is leading you to make an impact in this world. Where is He leading you? What is He doing? How is He inspiring you? How is He giving you definition to your life? George Barnes said, said, Vision is a clear and compelling mental portrait of a preferable future conveyed by God to His chosen leaders. If God is putting something in your heart, if there's passion, if there's turmoil of your spirit, it may be God awakening you. It may be God doing something in your life that He's never done before, that He's waited for all these 30, 40, 50 years for a day such as this, for a time such as this, for a place such as this. What is it? Where is He leading? Again, to go back to Andy Stanley in his book, Visioneering, everybody ends up somewhere in life. A few people end up somewhere on purpose. Those are the ones with vision. Everyone ends up somewhere. You're going to go somewhere. You're going to end up somewhere. There will be a beginning and an ending date on your tombstone. But whenever the ending of your life is done, well, you have gotten to where you intended to be on purpose or by accident. I really believe with all of my heart that God has a specific plan for everyone in this room. Now, sometimes it's coming together and working in collaboration. Sometimes it's, it's joining an organization. Sometimes it's starting something from the scratch. Sometimes it's just doing something. Sometimes it's putting down something. Sometimes it's taking up something. I don't know what it is for you and for each one of us in this room, but I hope that in the next few months that you listen and stop and allow God to interrupt you. Allow God to plant a seed, an idea, a burden, a vision, a dream in your heart that will just so waken you that you won't have to wonder why am I getting up today and what am I going to do today and what's this about today. That you get up knowing. you. In fact, you think sleep's a waste of time because there's so much you want to do. Live with vision and passion. Vision gives you passion. Vision gives you fuel. Vision gives you values of why you're living and breathing. Don't go to a job. Go to a vocation. Vocation is a Latin word. It's a Latin word that means a calling of God. Do you have a career or do you have a vocation? Are you called by God to do what you're doing, where you're doing it? Or are you merely paying the bills? Merely existing? Let me tell you about a man that probably most of you don't know about, and you can start finding it in your Bible, because it's going to be the study that we're going to do for the next few months. It's the book of Nehemiah. Now, unless you went through our fall Bible study as ladies, your, bi- your pages are probably still stuck together. Alright, so you may have a difficulty finding it, but go to the Old Testament, go to the table of contents, be finding the book of Nehemiah. About halfway, maybe a little bit uh, less than halfway through the Old Testament, and you'll find the book of Nehemiah. And let me tell you about a man that we actually know very little about. In fact, 
one of the flights back from Brussels to Newark, New Jersey this past week, we had a lot of ascetic Jews that were on that, on that flight. I don't know, there was some kind of convention, I don't know what it was going on, but actually sitting next to me was one very big, he kind of filled up a little bit of my seat and his seat and all of his seat and the seat next to him. And, uh, and so we, we were there, intimate, for a few hours, and so I, I, I asked him a few questions. You're going to be intimate with somebody, you got to get to know him, okay? And so I asked him a few questions, and uh, he was very quiet. He didn't want to talk. I could tell he didn't want to talk, so I didn't labor it too long. But I asked him, hey, uh, listen, I'm, 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 I'm a student of the Scriptures, and so tell me what you can tell me about Nehemiah. Now, whenever you think you're talking to an ascetic Jew, and you think you're talking to the one who has been in the, in the Old Testament, the Torah, the, uh, the Old Testament's writings, and when, you, when you think they, they're going to know, if anybody's going to know about Nehemiah, and he said, I can't tell you anything about Nehemiah. So this is a guy, again, that ascetic Jews of today don't know much about. They're, they're, there's just not a lot out there. I mean, he just is a period of time in history but a very important period of time in history where God interrupts his life. It was about 587 B.C. whenever big, mean Babylonians decided that they were going to conquer the world. This is after the Assyrians are already done their, their, their bout of, of dealing with Israel and, and taking them into exile. But they decide to come in and they're going to take Judah into exile. And so now this nation of Israel and Judah, that divided nation kingdoms, are now scattered abroad. Now Babylon, when, that, when the Babylon, modern day Iraq, came in, they came in about three different phases. And they literally brain drained the nation of Israel. You read through the Chronicles, you read through the Kings, and you'll find how they went in and they literally said that they took out all the craftsmen, all the silversmiths, all the doctors and lawyers and teachers and everybody. That's my little part added in there. They took all, it was a brain drain. It was a skill drain. They, they just absolutely left, and it says basically the peasants, the poor, the uneducated. They left those Israelites in Israel to fend for themselves. Babylon was a very much of a bully kind of, uh, 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 of rulers at that time. But then, if, in fact, in the very first uh, taking and raping of the land, Daniel, the book of Daniel, was taken. And he becomes an advisor to Nebuchadnezzar and the leaders uh, of, of Babylon and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And all of those, that's just a part of the brain drain that happened in Israel and in Judah on that day. And then all of a sudden king all of a sudden Persia becomes the superpower. And they take over and Cyrus is the very first king that allows Israel to move back home and to rebuild their temple. Read the book of Ezra and you can find about that the book just before Nehemiah and you can find out about how Ezra led and was a part of the rebuilding of the temple in such a beautiful way and the kings of uh, of Persia were supported behind it even giving money towards it. But then you go on a little further and the temple is restored and worship is restored and people are beginning to trickle back, trickle back to Israel. But there was something about Jerusalem that was totally left it exposed. The walls weren't rebuilt. The walls were not rebuilt around Jerusalem. Now you and I in 21st century America, we don't give a hoot about walls around cities. But if you were to live in that period of time, and if you were to not have walls around your cities, 
It might be the equivalent of living in the ghetto without doors and locks and guns. You would truly be living yourself totally exposed, totally vulnerable. And this is the era, and this is the time in which Nehemiah isn't back in Israel, but he is living and dining and working for King Artaxerxes. He's living in a very opportunistic situation. And no, he's not Persian. He's not Babylonian. He's, he's a Jew. He's a Hebrew. He's not in his motherland, but he has made do with where he's at. God has allowed him to climb up and he becomes the cupbearer to the king. A beautiful scenario. Because basically what he did as the cupbearer to the king is he was the, uh, I don't know, he was the wine expert to the king. He took care of all of the king's wines. That was his job. He would taste the king's wine. He was trusted. He was respected. He was known. The king was able to read his face. We'll get into that in a few weeks or next week. There was, a, there was a deep relationship. And here is Nehemiah in this beautiful Persian palace with the king and gainfully employed and living high on the hog. And all of a sudden, now listen to this next statement. God interrupts his life. God interrupts the comfort, the success of his accomplishments and his security. And says, I got something bigger for you to see. Something grander for you to be a part of. He interrupts his life. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, you can follow along in the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of, of Chislev in the, in the 12th year as, uh, he, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, the family comes to visit him, came and a certain men from Judah. So there's, a, there's an entourage. It's not just Hananiah. Hananiah is leading the brother, leading the, the fellow Hebrews to be with Nehemiah, to catch up. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who have survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. So what does he do? He just basically turns around and says, how's home? How are things back home? In the motherland, how are things with the brothers and sisters, the ones who escaped the exile, those who were left behind in the exile? How are they doing? How's home? And they said to him, the remnant were there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now again, I can't can't emphasize to you enough, but even in Proverbs 25, verse 28, jot it down and read it later on, but it even notices that there were Proverbs of that day. To live as a city without walls is to live in a very vulnerable state. There were Proverbs of that day. And here it is, the city doesn't have walls, they have the temple to try to rebuild their lives. And there's shame in the city. Now, the question that happens in, in times like this is, so what? How do I fit into this? What does Nehemiah do? Does he, does he just turn to them and say, hey, would you like another glass of wine? Hey, would you, would you like some more pork tenderloin? Hey, I think I can... No, they got pork. They wouldn't eat that. They're juice. But, I mean, would you like a, a, another ribeye or something like that? You know, well, what do you want? He doesn't do that because in the mode of being hostess to brother and friends, he all of a sudden gets a downloaded message 
that shakes him, that interrupts him, that begins to birth a vision inside of him. And God does this in amazing ways. You realize 80% of the people on the mission field today that live in an impoverished nation, that live in these strange places, that eat strange food, 80% of them said that before they ever went for the rest of their life, they first went for two weeks. God does something on these global adventures in people's lives. He begins to mess with them, begins to wake them up to the reality that they're living in. They may be a cupbearer to the king. They may have all the wine. They may be gainfully employed. They may have all this opportunity, but God is up to something bigger than just making us fat and sassy. He's up to something bigger. And what happens next, and we're only going to read one more verse, and this next verse really brings it to the table of how and what happens inside the heart of Nehemiah. And I just want to go through the first trimester of of birthing a vision, of how God births a vision in us. Next week we'll come back and we'll finish the other two trimesters of birthing a vision. But there are three terms to, to the birth of a vision. The first term is that a vision is conceived. I should say most of the time or all the time or some of the time, I'll say most of the time, through a burden. Through a burden, a vision, a dream, a calling isn't a hobby, a habit, or an accident. It's typically not birthed out of some fuzzy, warm feeling. A divine dream grips you and won't let you go. It won't let you put on more food on the table. It won't let you get another cup of wine for your friends. It stops you. It grabs you. It assaults you because what is a vision again? I go back. It's what could be and what should be. It's what could happen. Yes, that needs to happen. What is that? You define that as God gives it to you. But it's fueled by the fact that it should be. This has got to happen. This must happen. Who's going to answer this problem, this situation? Somebody must. And all of a sudden, a passion is awakened inside of Nehemiah the cupbearer that changes him. A passion where he comes alive, where he can't just go on with business as usual. And as, he, as, this, as this happens to him, and again, I, I realize sometimes the only time we're passionate is whenever somebody cuts us off on the interstate and we go into road rage. Or whenever our food does not come exactly warm the way we like it, then we get passionate. But it's not some selfish, hedonistic kind of passion here. He heard about a people that were suffering. He heard about his people that were shamed, that were downcast, that were vulnerable, that were weak. And you notice that things began to affect him. There were three effects of a divinely placed burden inside his soul. The burden stops you in your tracks. The very first thing you see in verse 4, it says, As soon as I heard these words, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down. I sat down. No more serving. No more wine. No more ribeye. No more vegetables. No more fruit. No more dessert. He just sat down. Suddenly everything that he was doing, everything that he was about, everything that was important, all of his schedules, all of his action lists, all of his goals and objectives, all of that stuff meant nothing. And he sits down. It will stop you in your tracks. 
when God begins to awaken your spirit, that a lot of what we're doing is meaningless and just striving after vanity. God has a way of putting people into positions. You think of Joseph with the people of Egypt. You think of Daniel in Babylon. You think of Esther after following the book of Nehemiah when she was put into a place, into a relationship for such a time as this. And now we think about Nehemiah. Here he is in this this influential role right next to the king, trusted by the king. Did God just allow him to be successful for his own successful in, in, in ambitions? No. God put him in that position to allow him to grow in influence, to allow him to be in a situation that we will see over the next few weeks to birth a vision in him that would end up restoring the people of Israel to their motherland. See, he went from success-focused to significance-focused. It was no longer about all the other stuff, the wine, the cabinet. See, again, to quote from Andy Stanley, vision will prioritize your values. All of a sudden, when you begin to see where you're at, when you begin to see what should be and what could be, you begin to say, you know what, all this other stuff is just peripheral. All this other stuff is just fluff. And there's something that's so much more important than this. When Lori and I were interrupted by God a few years back. We thought life was fine with our three kids. And and again, I don't want to retell the whole story. Some of you all have heard it, but when we were just in normal procedures of a normal day and a normal life, of going through normal normalcy, all of a sudden God steps into our life and begins to burden us for an orphan child in Zambia rocked us to the point that, man, I was on a plane the very next week spending savings and doing whatever to get there to bring memory back home. And that was a, that was a, that was a part of us that, that was absolutely so foreign to us, so unheard of to us, that we would go and bring another child, an orphan child from Africa into our home. It was not something that we dreamt up. It was something that all of a sudden God rattled us through a series of circumstances and events of that week. And it was just amazing. And we just had to, as He, he rocked us, He began to move in us. He stopped us in our tracks. What is it that God is calling you to? That you're willing to sell the farm, that you're willing to, to give it up, that you're willing to, to, to give up the titles and the positions, or, or, or you're willing to to take your influence as Nehemiah did and use it for God. And how is it that God is birthing a vision in you? And don't just knock it down and don't just excuse it off as some kind of harebrained idea. What is God awakening in you? You go on and you see that a burden touches you emotionally. It stops you in your tracks. Where all of a sudden all the stuff that you're doing around isn't as important as it once was. But a burden also touches your emotions. Whenever you notice there, he says in that verse 4, he said, as soon as I heard the words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. For days. For days. This wasn't a little whimper, a little little quivering of the cheek, a little dropping of a tear or two. This was something that rattled him to the core. Bill Heibel said, vision is a picture of the future that produces passion. 
passion, emotion, sensation, feelings tend to be dealt with on a couple of different levels. One is we excuse them off of some emotionalism. Oh, just get over that, that high that you come back from a global adventure, that high or that, what you observed and what you saw and the needs. You know, just excuse that. Go on. You'll get over it in a week or two. And you will. You will. Or you can allow it to grip you. And you say, okay, God, what are you doing? And how can I be a part of it? What are you up to? Are you showing me something here, God, that I could do and I could be a part of and I could help mobilize and I could help sponsor and I could help be... I live... I, I don't know. It's not just missions. It could be here locally. It could be a cause. It could be for, for, for the voices that don't have a voice. I, I don't know. What is it that God is awakening you to? will stir your emotions. Some people just excuse the emotions as some kind of emotionalism and they move on until finally the emotion clears. And the Bible speaks often about this hard-hearted, stiff-necked. We'll come to a place in Nehemiah when it talks about the people that were against the people of Israel, moved by passion, moved by vision, that they had, and it says it again and again and again, that they had stiff-necked. They had stiff necks. They were unmovable to their core. I'm afraid that too often we're a dry-eyed church in a world that cries itself to sleep. People feel empty, feel alone, and we go on. He wept for days. Like what Alan Redpath said, he said, "I never, you never lighten the load unless first you have felt the pressure in your own soul. You, have, you are never used of God to bring blessing until God has opened your eyes and made you see things as they are. I have a question for you. Do you feel pressure on your soul today? Pressure in an area of your heart and your life that don't corridor it off, don't excuse it off. Listen in, lean in, go for it. Say, God, what are you up to? God, what's, what's this about? John White talks in his book, Excellence in, Excellence in Leadership. It's a commentary on, based on Nehemiah. And he talks about a man in his church's daily prayer group. This is long before email or anything like that. A missionary from the Philippines, a single lady from the Philippines, sent a prayer letter back to their home church. And this letter just talked about how she had spinal tuberculosis. And how in that time, in that place, it was not easy to travel. And so she was stuck and confined to the, uh, the, the, the care, the hospitalization there in Manila. Prolonged period that she was stuck in a body cast. Well, this one single man went in, and John was his name, was shaken by the story and didn't know much about the situation, but other than just what was in the letter. And he immediately drops to his knees in the prayer room of his church, begins praying for this unnamed missionary that he didn't even know what she looked like, but she's got spinal tuberculosis in a Philippine hospital in Manila. He just begins praying. He, he, he doesn't leave that room and go on about business. He, he goes back and he goes back and he wants to know more and he inquires by snail mail and he does everything he can to find out more. How can I help? How can I be a part of the solution? He just begins to pray. And the beautiful thing is God hears the prayer and, and she's healed. She comes back home to her home church and, and meets John. And the beautiful story is they get married. Now, it's not about the married part that I want you to hear. 
the part when God interrupted his life, disturbed his emotions, and he was never the same. Business was not business as usual any longer. It stopped him in his tracks. As Nehemiah, he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days. Allow your senses, allow your emotions, allow your feelings, allow your passions to bubble up as you contemplate the vision that God may be awakening your soul to. There's one more part of this first trimester of a birthing of a vision that I don't want you to miss. It's all found right here in verse 4. And that is that the burden challenges your spirit, stops you in your tracks, stirs an emotion inside of you that maybe your emotions have been dead. Maybe your emotions are, are numb. But it awakens this something that could and should and how can you be a part of it kind of thing. You need to fan. You need to, you need to feel. You need to, you need to emote. You need to have that experience. And then, then you need to go to God in prayer. There needs to be a spiritual revival that happens. And notice what happens here. He said, and from this, I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. This vision that's being birthed inside of him was not some just man-conscious decision that he, that he made. Something that he said, God, is this of you? And what can I do? And how can I help? And how can I be a part? And what are you up to here? It began to rattle him to his very core. The Nehemiah story is one that I have looked at and studied for, I would say intently for the past 10 years. Maybe 11 or 12 years. I can remember studying it extensively in December of 1999. And in that period of time, I can remember the rumbling of my own spirit, my own soul. Because we were at this time living in Zambia. We had lived there for about three years, and, and uh, a couple of years, two, two or three years. And um, we, were, we were very much in full swing of our ministry at this point. And in fact, in that December of, of 99, uh, God allowed us to come back to the States. And in that, in that time period, we, we reached out to, across Arkansas, 1,300 churches. Because we wanted to rally around March 1st of that next year, 2000, uh, that, we would, that we would rally around... Uh, uh, 1,300 churches to pray for the Tonga people. Man, we were, we, were, we were into it. We were a part of it. It was a beautiful experience. And we spoke to about 20 different churches. And you want to tell you something that God began to do in this. Again, we're ramping up in this ministry over here. And all of a sudden, God does something in that experience. Back in December of 99, He began to really shake us to the core as we spoke in 20-something churches, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, as many churches as we could get into in, 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 in a couple of week period. And all of a sudden we began to see that churches really didn't, really didn't care much about what was happening on the other side of the world. It really wasn't, it really wasn't that important. You know, okay, we're having another missionary come in and speak and he's going to talk about his, his work and he's going to ask us to pray. And okay, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll pray. Out of about... 1,300 churches, I can remember about 50 of them. 13. 50 of them joined us on March 1st of 2000 to pray. I was so disappointed. 
hey, but God can take 50 people praying, 50 churches praying and do great things, so we just take what we can get. But I was so disturbed by the American church and its lack of vision, its lack of passion for the world. And God had put that on our hearts, and we didn't want to back away from that. We we wanted to see our motherland disturbed to the core. It was in April of 2000. So this is after the day of prayer for the Tonga people in March. It's in April of 2000, and through the study of Nehemiah, that I began to hear something inside of my head and my heart that I just wasn't ready to hear. I didn't think I was hearing it correctly, but I just did as, as, as Nehemiah did. I began to pray. I began to become so burdened for the church in America, the church at large in America, and how the, they're so consumed with themselves and so consumed and wrapped up in their own felt needs that they're, they've totally missed the world. And so in April, I shared with Lori in April of 2000, I said, Lori, I think God may be calling us back to America. She was not excited about that. She was everything but excited about that. Again, churches were multiplying, things were going, we were in the groove. To this day, our oldest daughter calls Livingston, Zambia home. May God begin to stir in us with a new passion that there would be a church alive in America with the world on its heart that wouldn't back away from that. We knew that that would never happen in an existing church. It was April 17th that I wrote in my prayer journal, God, are you calling us back to America? God, are you calling us to start a church? God, where? We looked at Boston. We looked at Seattle. And and Lori was just letting me pray about it. She was secretly praying on her own, but she didn't want to talk about it for seven months and six days because it was on November 23rd in my journal, and I looked it up. November 23rd of 2000. We were in South Africa on a medical trip. We were in in our room in our little apartment, and she said, God's calling us back. We didn't know how. We didn't know where. We just knew that it could happen and it should happen. And from that, God began to work and shape and mold in us this calling back. And it was in June of 2001 that we began meeting in a living room about five or six families and here we are today let me repeat to you something I said earlier every one of us will end up somewhere in life a few people will end up somewhere on purpose those are the ones with vision and when you have vision it will affect you body, soul and spirit it stopped him in his tracks and he sat down it awakened his soul he began to weep for days stirred him in his spirit and he began to seek God of heaven God begins to birth a vision in Nehemiah he began to birth a vision in Mike and Lori back in 2000 what's he doing in your life in 2012 will you take the next few weeks will you take this week and clear off time and space and margin into your life and should happen and how can I be a part of it would you pray with me Father awaken us 
waking us from our mundane, our normal, our set in our ways kind of living. Waking our souls, our spirits, our bodies, disturb us, Lord. Interrupt us if you need be. 